Father, we're so grateful for the privilege and the opportunity to worship you, to lift high the name of Jesus together corporately. Pray that this morning, Lord, you may help us to have uh, soft, tender hearts to the preaching and the teaching of your word, that we may exalt you, Lord, in everything that we do, even through your word going out today. Help us to walk away people who are challenged and who are, uh, Lord, committed to applying that which we hear, uh, not only as individuals, but as a corporate body, Father. We ask for your blessing upon our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, and verses 32 to 35 is our text for this morning. Acts 4, verses 32 to 35. And I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Word of God if you're able to stand. Acts 4, verses 32 to 35. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. You may have a seat. Well, some of you are not real big on history, I know, but I personally love history. In fact, um, English and history are my two favorite uh, subjects, and history in particular is fascinating to me uh, because of in history you can actually read of the development and the birth of the great world powers, great nations uh, in history. I love reading, for instance, about the United States, how the country was born and established as a great country um, in everything that it is. It is fascinating to read of those events and those uh, battles and those individuals who played a key role in the establishment of our great country and our great nation and how it's grown over the years into the, the country that it is. It's fascinating to me. And in the same way, beloved, that Americans can read American history to understand the birth and the establishing and the growth of the U.S. as a country. We as Christians can read the book of Acts and be reminded and celebrate the birth and growth of this wonderful living organism that we call the church. That's why Luke wrote the book of Acts. He wrote the book of Acts as part two of a single work, the first part being the gospel of Luke. And in Acts, Luke tells us of the continuing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer in visible, physical form, but now in and through his redeemed people, who we call the church. And so today, we have the wonderful opportunity, as we're all together, to be reminded of our Christian roots, if you will. Of where the church began to be reminded of the mighty work that Christ did by His Spirit, Spirit some 2,000 years ago, beginning in Jerusalem. After Jesus' commission of His church, He ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent the Holy Spirit to empower His church for mission. And what we joyfully read about in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit coming and the people of God now taking the baton of the gospel and preaching Christ all over the place, beginning in Jerusalem. 
And throughout the book of Acts, we get these wonderful progress reports from which we get updates about the church's growth and development. We're reminded of the wonderful reality that Jesus said he would do, his wonderful promise of Matthew 16, 18, where he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And this is exactly what we see in this beautiful book of Acts. We see that Jesus, by means of his spirit and the proclamation of his word, he grows his church through many toils and snares and persecution and opposition. And while there are many unique, unrepeatable events that we find in the book of Acts, I don't want us to miss the wonderful manner in which these early Christians behaved toward one another and lived together. They were truly a gospel-transformed people. The qualities of mutual love and care for one another that we observe in this early church are qualities, beloved, that we would do well to emulate. And in doing so, I submit to you that we can experience, as they did, a little piece of what heaven looks like as they communed together. And so I want us to examine together from the life of this early church this morning some some marks of a gospel-transformed people. What are some marks of a gospel-transformed people? And these that we're going to look at are not exhaustive by any means. We can talk about many other marks of a church, such as holiness. We can talk about that. But these are important qualities that marked our brethren that I think we need to pay close attention to. And I want you to notice, first and foremost, in verse 32, that these people were a unified community. These gospel-transformed people were a unified community. Look at verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now, it's interesting when you bring up the whole concept of unity. Unity is interesting, depending on how you define it. For some people, unity means uniformity, the reality that everyone needs to look the same and think the same about everything, as if we were robots, caricatures of one another. Christian unity, however, is much deeper and more substantial, is it not? Christian unity is not based upon some loosey-goosey, superficial reality where we just all force one another to get along. Christian unity is based upon something more substantial, more deep, more profound than that. And I want you to notice this in the life of this early church. The basis for their unity was their common belief. Notice what it says in verse 32. And the congregation or the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and soul. By now it is believed that the church had grown to somewhere between ten to 15,000 people. Some estimate even close to 20,000. It was a growing church numerically. It was a thriving church. But what is it that unified them? What unified them was the fact that they had faith. That they believed. That they believed. Now, faith and belief, I understand, and we understand, that they're words that are kind of thrown around quite flippantly in our day and age. They mean different things for different people. And for others, they mean very little. For some, to talk about faith or belief has no object whatsoever. It merely refers to some emotion or concept that they can't fully explain or some floating substance. 
And in fact, for some people, the fact that you can't even define what you believe in or have faith in carries some virtue to it. Well, not so for these Christians. Not so. They had believed in a person. They had an object of faith. And I want you to notice this. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, this is the verses 14 through 36 of Acts 2, is a thunderous sermon by the Apostle Peter. One of the greatest sermons ever preached, second only to the sermons by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he preaches on the fact that the God of the Old Testament has now visited his people and has set forth his Messiah, who is, by the way, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, the very one that you crucified. He is the exalted one. Notice what he says in verse 36. Here's the the climax of Peter's sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. You have crucified the Messiah, says Peter. You have crucified the Messiah. And what is the response of Peter's sermon in verse 37? When they heard this. These are all the people who are there for Pentecost. They were pierced to the heart. That refers to a sudden stabbing, a conviction. They were convicted of what they had done. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do in response to this message about Christ's person and His work? And in verse 38, Peter tells them, how they might apply what Christ has done to themselves. Peter says to them, repent, which means turn from your sins. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And for them, baptism was a public renunciation of Judaism and an embracing of this one, Jesus of Nazareth, as the true Messiah of God. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And notice in verse 40, he keeps pleading with them. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And verse 41 has this beautiful report from Luke. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. The word received there is a synonym for belief for embracing the truth, for trusting in the message of Christ, that He was the only one that could bring forgiveness to them, that He was the true Messiah. And that day, 3,000 souls came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed in Christ, beloved, as their only hope. And they received the promise of the Spirit and were transformed from the inside out. They were saved from their sin and from the coming judgment of God that Peter had just preached on. What a wonderful thing this is. And all of this was in the name of Jesus Christ. So notice, their belief, their faith, was in the object, the person, and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they surrendered their lives to Him. And I submit to you, beloved, that this is where unity begins, does it not? This is where unity begins. Your faith must be in Christ alone as your only hope. Not in your works not in anything else. And I'll tell you this, nothing else that I will say after this will mean anything to you if you are not in Christ. The type of life that these believers lived together 
and the type of community that they were doesn't make any sense if you do not have your faith fixed on Christ as your only hope. I fear so much that people put their trust in so many things. Religion and their own goals. People put their trust in some past profession. Maybe their church attendance. Maybe their external morality. Maybe in the fact that your parents are Christians. Maybe in some, in some illusion that you are a good person. None of those things, beloved, save None of those things do. The only hope that Peter preached for mankind to be saved from this perverse generation was the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. He was the only one. And so their belief and their faith had Christ as its object. Their relationship with God by faith in Christ was the basis of their unity. And it was not unity based upon some nebulous concept. No, It was their personal belief in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were those who had believed, who had surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, who had renounced self-worship and salvation based upon some performance. And it was because of this belief, beloved, it was because of this belief in Christ's person and work, that they were able to express their unity in amazing ways. And I want us to look at that. Notice what it says in verse 32. And the congregation of those who, had, who believed were of one heart and soul. This is beautiful. This is marvelous here. These terms that are used for one heart and soul. On the one hand, these describe this close bond that they had. This genuine, profound bond that they had, this friendship, this relationship that they had with one another. These believers were a closely knit group of people because their fellowship in Christ drove them to that. Drove them to be of one heart and one soul together. They loved one another. They loved one another. On the other hand, it also describes the singleness of purpose that they shared They were sold out for the cause of Christ, beloved. These people were sold out for the cause of Christ. Throughout the book of Acts, I wish we had a a time to be able to survey the whole book and the countless times that Luke keeps describing this communal life, this singleness of purpose, this like-mindedness that they shared, moving in one direction together. Over and over again, there was a singleness of purpose that they shared. They were completely sold out for the cause of Christ. Completely sold out. What is so miraculous and beautiful about a group of people expressing unity of mind and friendship and relationship? What is so beautiful about that is that we're all so different. We're all so different. We all come from various cultures and backgrounds and social upbringings and race and social standing, if you will. And the only way that you and I could be of one heart and soul in this profound kind of way, beloved, is because of what Christ has done. Amen? Because of what He's done. And because of what Christ has done, there's this unexplainable miracle of salvation that God has wrought in the human heart. And therefore, we can have unity. And we can function that way. Like-minded, working together for the progress of the gospel. That's the only way that this works. 
And again, remember, by this time, the church had grown to thousands, to multitudes, multitudes. And some people say, well, is it possible to have this type of unity and real relationship in the church when it gets to be a mega church like this? Is that even possible? Well, I would say, yes, if it's done right. Yes, if we're deliberate. Not if you have corporate gatherings, and then the rest of the week, nobody spends time together. The early church, beloved, according to Acts 2.46, spent time publicly in the temple, and then privately from house to house. They gathered in the temple and from house to house in subunits. They would break down into smaller groups to be together so that they could be of one heart and soul. So that they could establish relationships and friendship. So that they might be moving cohesively in one direction together. They constantly spend time together practicing hospitality. Being kind to one another. Opening up their homes for one another. That's why I'm so thankful here at Calvary. We have men's ministries and women's ministries. Where you can break down and there's gender specific instruction that you can receive. Then we have men's small groups and women's small groups. Why do we do that? Because they are smaller subunits where you can get to know other people. And other people can get to know you. And there's accountability and fellowship there. And we're spurring one another to love and good deeds in those contexts. Our our fellowship groups have home discipleship groups attached to those. Where during the week, every week or twice a month, you meet in somebody's home and you talk about Bible application and you spend time together and you get to know one another and you hear one another's burdens and you pray for one another. That must happen. That must happen. And I would encourage you that you need to be actively participating, beloved, in more than just Sunday mornings. If you are a genuine Christian and you want to experience being of one heart and soul with another group of people, then you need to spend time together. You must be spending time together. But Kempis, I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert. It's hard, you know. It's awkward in the beginning. And I would say, yeah. But you know what? If you, are, you just walk in obedience and you pursue this, you will quickly realize that the person or family you're inviting over is just as scared or apprehensive as you are. I've experienced that over and over again. So we must be obedient in this area, beloved. There is no way that we can walk in unity if we're not spending time together. Amen? We must be spending time together. Today is a wonderful opportunity for you to do that. Right after the service, we're going to go into the big room and have a, have a bash, right? Some good food. We're going to be hanging out together. We're going to be spending time together, talking in conversation, maybe talking about the sermon, how lousy it was or how good it was. Be nice, okay? Be nice. And then we're going to hear from, uh, about the Honduras missions trip. It's a great opportunity for you to be around and be a part of that. I don't want to see anybody... Or any of the elders see anybody run out, shoot out right after the service and not be a part of that, beloved. What a wonderful time for us to be together. But most important, I want you to know that if you don't have the right motivation, you're not going to be eager to do this. You're not going to be eager to spend time with the people of God and therefore be of one heart and soul. Without Christ, without Christ, these people would not have wanted to be around one another in a very genuine way. Christ is the greatest motivation. 
It was this greater vision and glimpse of Christ and the transformation that he wrought from the inside out, which propelled these believers to want to be together. Christ makes all the difference. See, the essence of believing in Christ, beloved, means that you treasure Christ above anything or anyone in this life. Believing in Christ means that you find Him infinitely more valuable than anything you hold dear to in this life. That's what the essence of belief is all about. And it is this treasuring of Christ that then leads you to want to spend time with others who want to do the same thing that you want to do, and that is exalt Christ. That's where it starts. That's the motivation for walking and functioning in unity together. It was this treasuring of Christ that catapulted them to live united as one with one heart and soul. Treasuring Christ, loving one another as a response of that, moving together in one direction. They were a transformed church who was unified because of the exalted Christ. And because this community of believers had a high view of Christ, they were eager to express loving generosity toward one another. And that is the second gospel. These gospel-transformed people were a generous community. They were a unified community. They were a generous community. Look at this in verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. Notice this. You know, we live in a very materialistic society, do we not? Our culture is full of people with a sense of self-entitlement, with a sense of, of possessiveness. They hold to their possessions very dearly. In our culture, there's this general attitude of, hey, I've worked hard for this or that particular thing, so why should I share it? Why should I share? In fact, part of being an American, for many people, is fighting for your rights, fighting for your privileges, fighting to keep that which we feel rightfully belongs to us. And at the end of the day, if we're honest, we have a very worldly view of our possessions and our belongings, the things that we have, beloved. But the early church practiced generosity because they had a right view of their possessions, did they not? Look at verse 32 again in the middle. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Notice, anything belonging to him was his own. It is not that they did not own property or had money. It's not that. But the text says that not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. In other words, no one had this mindset or this attitude of self-entitlement. That, hey, I deserve what I have because I've worked hard for it, and why should I give to others who are lazy or who have not advanced themselves as much as I have? A sense of possessiveness, of greediness. This is mine, and I'm not going to share. These people were not greedy with their resources, And I submit to you that the reason why is because they had a right understanding of their possessions. Namely, that everything that they had was whose? God's. That everything that they had was God's. 
Because if you see, if you, if you remember that everything that you have is not yours, but ultimately given to you by God, then sharing becomes more of a way of life, does it not? Your possessions are not yours, but they are a stewardship. They are borrowed. And ultimately, what you have, your money and your possessions, becomes a test. How you use those possessions and how you invest them becomes a test of where your heart is. Jesus in Matthew 6.21 said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you treasure money and possessions, then money becomes the Lord of your life. Money is your master. Money is your idol. Your possessions are your idol. But if your heart is to invest into the kingdom and God's kingdom people... It shows that at the end of the day, you have a right understanding of what God has given you. We need to be reminded of the same thing, beloved. How easy it is in a materialistic society to forget that everything you have belongs to God. He gave it to you. It's a stewardship. And He's watching to see, as a manifestation of your heart, how you use those resources. Not just physical, material things, but also your time and your family and everything that He has given you. Everything belongs to the Lord. Psalm 24.1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. Psalm 89 verse 1 says, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. Everything. The little insect crawling about, right? And then when you look out into the span, beautiful universe, every single planet, every single galaxy belongs to Almighty God, beloved. You belong to God. You belong to God. 1 Corinthians 10.26 For the earth is the Lord and all it contains. That's a quotation from Psalm 89.11. God speaking in Psalm 50 and verse 12 says this, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. If God could be hungry, He wouldn't ask you for permission because it belongs to Him anyway. Beloved, do you understand that everything that you have is God's? Nothing, nothing, nothing belongs to you. It is borrowed. It is a stewardship from Almighty God. And I want you to notice that it was this right understanding of their possessions that led the early church to express their generosity in very tangible, self-sacrificial kinds of ways. They met needs. They were committed to meeting needs. Look at verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. We know that there were many people in those days who were very needy in the land of Palestine. Even during the ministry of our Lord. There are many instances when we see our Lord and His apostles care for people who are poverty-stricken, people who were in legitimate need of basic sustenance. They even carried a sort of benevolence offering around with them to be able to give to the poor, not just for themselves, but to be able to give away 
There were a lot of people who had need. And we know that even years later, during the early church times, that there were a lot of people who were, who were in need. Perhaps many of the people who were a part of the church by this time were people that, that months or maybe one to two years before had been at Pentecost and had, and had come out, pilgrims from outside of the land had come into Jerusalem and had been saved. These people didn't have very much. Needs abounded in the early church. In Acts 6, we have evidence that there was already in the early church a sort of formalized mercy ministry. Mercy ministry where widows and others were being provided with meals. So there were many, many needs. Many, many needs. People who lacked resources for basic survival. And the early church, rather than turning a blind eye to the needs of their brethren around them, engaged. They took ownership of one another. They were a community and they understood that based upon their relationship with Christ. There was this willing, joyful sharing with one another. So there were some who were perhaps more prosperous than others. According to verse 34, it says that there were those who were owners of land or houses. People who perhaps had been blessed with more than what they needed. It is not that they sold their own homes and put their family out on the street. That wouldn't make any sense, and that wouldn't honor the Lord either. The leader of the home made sure that his family was taken care of, that he must provide for his family. But beyond this, families practiced sacrificial giving. They sought to meet needs, to make sure that their brethren were taken care of, that they weren't lacking what they needed for basic survival. And notice what I just said. Basic survival, right? Basic needs. What are those basic needs? We have to be so careful that in our American culture, in our society, that we don't allow the culture around us to define for us what those needs are, right? I need that new iPhone. I need that house, that five or six bedroom house instead of the three or four bedroom one that I have. I need that particular car right there, right? I already have a Honda Civic, but I really want that Suburban. We allow our society, our materialistic society, to define for us what our needs are. But Jesus tells us what our basic needs are in Matthew 6.31. Instructing about not being anxious, Jesus says to the multitudes, Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. For your heavenly Father, listen, knows that you need all these things. How does Jesus define basic needs? Food, drink, and clothing. It is not that beyond these things, anything is inherently sinful, or you're greedy if you have a home, or you're greedy if you have a couple of cars, right? It isn't that at all. We know that there are Proverbs and Scriptures that speak so much about planning and, and, and earning money so that you would be able to provide for your family. And not only that, but care for other people as well. It isn't that. But that we need to put in perspective, beloved, what true needs really are. Not allowing the culture around us to define what those are. But really checking ourselves and opening up God's Word to define for us what these needs are. These have to do with basic sustenance for one's survival. 
I know it goes against our society standards and perspective, but that's what the Bible says. Amen? That's what the Bible says. So the American dream about me having bul- a, a bulky savings account and many assets, right? So that I can get away as many times as I want. So that I can care for my family forevermore. We have to be very careful. Those things are very good and profitable. And planning is good. And using your money to invest into your family and your children. All of those things are very good things. But let's not allow those things to become an idol, beloved. Especially in our culture. This is not the way of the Christian. This is why Jesus spoke so much about our possessions and money. Jesus said, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head, He said. What was He saying? Possessions are wrong. Money is evil. Earnings are bad. It is wrong to plan. What He was saying is, count the cost of following Me if you're indeed going to follow Me. Possessions and money are not to be your idol. I am to be the supreme object of worship, says Jesus there. Man's life does not consist of his what? Of his possessions. Man's life does not consist of his possessions. Well, in the early church, there was a sharing of resources because of their perspective that they had. They cared for their fellow brethren, made sure that they were taken care of. They were anti-typical societal standards and norms that the church was following here in caring for one another. Because the mood of the day was for self-preservation and to personally invest into yourself and your future through lands and homes and all of that. What are they doing? If they have an excess, they sell that and they present it to the apostles so that the apostles would distribute to any who had needs. You say, but Kempis, what about those people in the church and outside the church who exploit the church and take advantage of her? What about that? Don't we have to be careful? Yes. We do have to be careful. This is why the early church wisely channeled their self-sacrificial, generous giving to trustworthy leaders to do everything that they could to ensure that those resources would be used wisely, right? Look at verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. The mechanism by which the congregation ensured that the money was used wisely was some type of a benevolence fund stewarded by the apostles, at least for now. Because in Acts chapter 6, we see, I believe, in seed form, the beginning of the deacon office. And I'm sure that the apostles wisely sought to assess the needs that were communicated so that they might care for the brethren. But what motivated this type of self-sacrificial giving? What motivated it? I'm always concerned about that for my own soul. I don't want to just go through the motions. I don't want to just tell people, do this and do that. But I want to show you that there was a motivation for them. And I find it so interesting that sandwiched in between the end of verse 32, which talks about this generous uh, community, and then verses 34 to 35, which is the expression of what they did with their resources, Luke puts this verse 33 in here. And he says, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And listen, An abundant grace was upon them all. 
This community, beloved, was experiencing the divine favor and the kindness of God. And as a fruit of that sense of blessing and favor from God, their hearts overflowed with gratitude unto one another. They were a gracious community. And they wanted to express that graciousness that God had displayed to them toward one another. So they practiced mutual generosity. They met needs, both spiritual and physical. That was their commitment. And it began with the right view of their possessions. Yes, motivated by the grace of God that had been displayed toward them. Beloved, possessions or money are not evil in themselves. In fact, you can lack these things and you and still be a greedy, materialistic person, right? Even if you lack these things, it is the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil. It is the love of money, the, the idolatrous perspective concerning money and possessions. And I would submit to you that's part of the reason why many of us are not practicing generosity toward others. Giving not only of material things, but our time and of our energy to serve is ultimately a spiritual problem. It reveals something about your heart. It is a love for God problem. Perhaps you have forgotten of the, of the graciousness of God displayed toward you. Not only in salvation, but how good He has been to you. Amen? How good He constantly is to you, displaying His favor and His blessing upon you. He's a gracious, loving, good God. Always providing what we need. And I would, I would encourage you and exhort you to be considering, how might the Lord use me this next week to be an instrument of blessing to somebody else? Maybe I don't have the money to give to somebody else, but maybe my time, maybe my energy in some capacity, maybe taking my family into an environment to serve other people and you leading the charge as the man of the home. How might you, as an overflow of God's grace toward you, display graciousness and generosity toward somebody else in this body, beloved? I would encourage you and exhort you to be thinking about that. You know who was the ultimate wonderful example of this humble, self-sacrificial generosity? Jesus. Throughout his life, he modeled this type of generosity for the apostles, did he not? He modeled for them what it meant to give and serve one another. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Stop and ponder that this week. If you're struggling with a, a, a spirit of generosity toward other people, how Jesus left his heavenly kingdom and clothed himself with humanity, so that by faith in his atoning death for our sins, you and I can become rich. Think about that. That is the ultimate motivation, beloved. That God has transformed our lives. And He has extended to us the gift of His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God demonstrates His own love toward you. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love of God and the goodness of God and the generosity of our Heavenly Father. Amen? Amen. 
It is the ultimate motivation for us to do the same toward one another, beloved. Let us strive to be a church who imitates our Savior. I would love, and I'm sure the elders would, and many of us would love to see a church full of people competing with one another to meet needs. I mean, can you imagine that? As soon as a need is presented, we have a church full of people so, so full of holy zeal and desire to meet one another's needs that they're trying to outdo each other. Hey, that was my need that I wanted to fill. You stop that right now. That was me first. Can you imagine that? If we try to outdo one another in meeting needs and blessing other people, how beautiful would that be? If we're characterized, beloved, by self-sacrificial effort toward the meeting of needs in this manner as a fruit of gospel transformation. So these gospel-transformed people were a unified community, a generous community. And thirdly, I want you to see this briefly. They were a witnessing community, a witnessing community. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. This early church was focused on her mission. And right here in verse 33, we get this, this synopsis of the preaching of the apostles. But we know that the early church was preaching the word of God centered and climaxed on the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had received their mission, their commission from the Lord Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 7 says, It is not time for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And throughout the book of Acts, what we see is this church on mission to exalt Christ by making disciples. That was their greatest commitment. And we have this snapshot here in verse 33 of the church's focus. This is so, so good. The apostles were the pioneers of the start of this new, beautiful, growing, living organism called the church. And they were leading the charge in proclaiming Christ. And Peter got the show on the road in his first sermon in, in, in Acts chapter 2, did he not? And then he preached another sermon in Acts 3. 3,000 and then 5,000 are added to the church. They are a witnessing community. Those are basically summary statements of those sermons. But we know that the church was sharing and preaching Christ. And the church was growing. And you know what? They understood that this was not optional, beloved. To preach and share Christ was not optional. In fact, I love this here. In verse 33, we have this little word, giving. Giving. Which carries the idea of giving away something that has been entrusted to you. Giving away something that has been entrusted to you. Jesus had entrusted them with a divine message. He had given them a divine baton, if you will, to pass on to others, to the unbelieving world. They were stewards, in other words, of the message of the gospel. And it centered on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And the capstone, the climax of that message, was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the resurrection is so huge. Jesus spends 40 days after he rose from the dead with his followers so that they would be fully convinced that he had indeed risen from the dead and that they understood the implications of his resurrection from the Old Testament scriptures. The resurrection was huge. 
The first sermon by Peter. Peter focuses on on talking about how this God of the Old Testament has been faithful now in bringing forth His Messiah and He's risen Him from the dead and has glorified His servant, Jesus. And then in in his second sermon in chapter 3, again, Peter gets into the resurrection. Preaching Christ is essential, beloved. That is what our mission is on this earth. That's why we're here. We're here to proclaim Christ. And we're here to tell them of a risen Lord who is coming back, who is the King of the universe. Because they need to know, they need to know that if they don't turn from their sins and put their faith in this one who is the only hope, they will perish eternally. They will be eternally separated from God. How committed are you to witnessing for the sake of Christ? How committed are you to doing that? I don't know what your life goals are, beloved. I don't know what they are. I don't know what you're currently pursuing and investing most of your time into as a believer. I want to ask you this morning, are you eager to tell people about Jesus? Are you zealous for the name of Christ to be exalted on this earth in the lives of people? A genuine disciple of Christ is not only someone who follows Christ, but strives to make other followers of Christ, right? That is a genuine follower of Christ. And do you know that you are indebted to the world to hand over this message? You're indebted to the world. It's not optional. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 1.14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 1 Corinthians 9.16 For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is me, says Paul. 1 Corinthians 9.23 I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. 2 Corinthians 5.17, this is one of my favorite passages. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, what is that ministry? That God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against Him, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a glorious passage. What a glorious passage. That an infinitely holy God, being the one who was offended, stepped in, beloved, and sending his own son into the world to reconcile the world to himself. When he was the one that we had rebelled against, he stepped in because of his great love and his grace. He stepped in to reconcile us to Himself. And not only that, but if you have come to know Christ and you are a believer, He has commissioned you with the ministry of reconciliation that now you take that baton and you as an ambassador go into enemy territory and tell them, repent, turn from your sins. 
Trust in Christ as the only hope for your sins. Treasure Him. Infinitely value Him above anything. Stop living for yourself. Stop worshiping yourself. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Otherwise, the King is coming and you're going to be wiped out. We are ambassadors, are we not? We have been given the ministry of reconciliation, beloved. We are a witnessing community on this earth, not only as individuals, but corporately as a body. Amen? That's what we need to be all about on this earth. This is why we're here. We're here as God's instruments through which through whom he's going to build his church and add worshipers to that beautiful, glorious scene in the book of Revelation, where people from every tongue and nation and tribe will be there, worshiping the exalted Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. I want to see a lot more people there. You say, well, God is sovereign. He's going to, everybody who's going to be there is going to be there. He doesn't need me. God uses means, does he not? God uses means. As C.H. Spurgeon one time put it, I preach Christ to everyone, everyone, open call to repent to everyone, because people are not walking around with an E for elect on their back, right? So you preach Christ to everyone, and you call them to repentance and to allegiance to this one who is the only hope, the risen and exalted Christ, beloved, whom we worship here on this earth. This gospel transformed people. We're a unified, generous, and witnessing community. And, beloved, I pray, and we should each be praying, individually and corporately, that this is the kind of people that we might be on this earth as we await our King's return. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful to you, Lord. I am so convicted in my own life of the fact that I am not a man who is as zealous as I should be for your name to be exalted on this earth. Please forgive me, Lord. And help me and help us as a church to be a church that is so zealous, that is so consumed and captivated by the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be propelled to tell people about Jesus individually, corporately, beginning in our homes, extended family, our neighborhoods, and our work environments, that we might not see our jobs as end in themselves, Lord, but as an opportunity, a context, whereby we might come face-to-face with other people, Lord, who are heading straight to hell. Use us, Father, to show them the beauty of Jesus and His glory as the King who is returning someday. Help us, Lord, to be a unified community, to be a generous community, and to be a witnessing community for your glory and the exaltation of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.